0: The Adams Archive.
1: Hello, you beautiful people, and welcome to the Adams Archive. My name is Austin Adams, and thank you so much for listening today. On today's episode, we're going to be doing a deep dive in the theme of today, which is actually Martin Luther King Day. And you're not listening to it on Martin Luther King Day, but I digress. It got me interested in the topic, and I learned a little bit more about it. So now I want to share my findings with you. Which is the fact that Martin 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 Luther King was actually, allegedly, not really allegedly, but allegedly, assassinated by the FBI in cahoots with the CIA and the military intelligence. And the reason that this came about was because of a 1999 trial by somebody who is a whistleblower who said that he worked with a mob and was paid $100,000 to hire a hitman for this job by those same individuals who moved all the moving pieces around to make it happen. So we'll discuss that. We'll dive deep into the situation. We'll also have a conversation about Martin Luther King in general. There's been some controversial conversations about his values and and things like that. So we'll talk about that. And when it comes to some current events, we're also going to discuss this, which is the fact that the FAA is actively now recruiting people with severe intellectual and psychiatric disabilities as a part of a diversity and inclusion plan. Don't worry, we'll talk about it. After that, we will talk about the next thing, which is the fact that uh, the caucus is going on tonight in Iowa. So we'll just briefly, super briefly touch on that because I believe we already have a winner. And we will also discuss the World Economic Forum coming out and saying that the idea that Trump could potentially win the 2024 election is, and I quote, and this actually came from, I believe, somebody, the the uh, head of BlackRock, uh, a woman there that was at the World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, said that it was a great concern, quote unquote, if Trump won the election. Now, all of that more, make sure you stick around because the longer you're here, the deeper we get. All right. So before you do that, uh, you go ahead and... Leave a review. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you're at, go ahead and click the five stars if you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. If you haven't watched the episodes before, all of the stuff that I'm talking about here with you on the podcast is also available on YouTube, just with my beautiful face and all the articles and videos that we're watching up on the screen for you. So if you're working, whatever you got going on, you're cleaning up the house, whatever you're doing, Put on YouTube, man. I'll be right there waiting for you, and you'll actually be able to see everything that we're discussing, all of the articles and everything there. All right? So without further ado, let's jump into it. The Adams Archive. All right. So, the very first topic that we're going to discuss today is going to be that the Pentagon actually responded. All right. Let's jump into it. The very first thing that we're going to discuss today is going to be that the FAA came out and said, and you're hearing this correct the FAA said that they were going to start doing diversity hires for people who are severely and mentally incapable. that seems like the absolute worst idea in the world. If there was any job that you would do, and I can actually speak to this, uh, and I'll get into more detail on that for you, but if there's any job that you shouldn't be able to do, this should probably be on the list. So here's this article. It comes from the Millennial, and it says, Biden's FAA is actively recruiting people with severe intellectual and psychiatric disabilities as a part of diversity and inclusion plan. Yeah, if you're terrified... You should be, because when I was in the the FAA certification process, right, when I was going through air traffic control school to be in the Air Force when I was in the Air Force, um, we wouldn't even when, when you went in and you got your FAA certification, you got this little pink card that, that showed that you were an air traffic controller. You had to go through all these tests. The tests were quite difficult, by the way. So I'm not sure, like my class of uh, air traffic controllers from tech school at uh, Biloxi, Mississippi, did essentially, we had 24 people or 27 people or so when we started. And by the end of it, eight of us graduated. So it's it's not like this is easy stuff. And then you go to your actual base, and then even a larger amount of people wash out at their base, depending on what base you go to. Now, when it comes to the FAA allowing severe intellectual and psychiatric disabilities to be a part of this Organization and, and these types of jobs, we're talking about people who have your lives in their hands at all times. When you talk about air traffic controllers and pilots, you need to be mentally sharp, you need to be mentally capable, you need to be able to make split second decisions that are going to choose life or death for hundreds of people at a time. And here's how I would explain air traffic control you know, some people, everybody thinks it's like the person with the cone sitting down on the runway. No. The air traffic controller either has one of two jobs. One's in a tower, one's in a radar facility. And if you're in the tower, you're basically working air traffic within maybe five miles around your base. And if you're working in a a radar facility like I did, you work potentially up to 20, 30, even larger distances than that. So you're controlling. So when when you're doing a radar facility, you see a screen. When you're in tower, it's a little bit different. You use different tools. But when you're in the radar facility, you see basically a screen. And it looks like a video game. And there's little triangles on there with little you know letters and numbers next to them. And each one of those triangles could represent anywhere from two to 250 people. And your job as an air traffic controller is to is to t- look and observe the altitude of the aircraft that you're looking at check their uh, the altitude their speed and then you're supposed to create patterns there's already generally pre-created patterns, but you're you're supposed to keep them within the air traffic patterns. Tell them when there's traffic. Give them the the distance, the speed, the altitude of the traffic, and and at the same time, you know there were certain times in our air traffic facility when one person would be working upwards of twenty to twenty five different planes at a single given time. So you can imagine what that looks like when you're trying to maintain and track twenty five small triangles and make sure that they don't hit each other. Because if those triangles touch each other, you could have killed 500 people. Now, when we're talking about the FAA allowing severely intellectually and psychiatrically disabled individuals into the FAA, we're also talking about pilots. Now, I don't know about you, but I just watched a recent Netflix movie, and it's the most it's like the highest Netflix, the highest watched Netflix movie right now. Pretty sure it's like Sons of Snow or something like that. And essentially what happened is back in the 1970s, there was a pilot, a perfectly capable, unmentally handicapped or severely intellectually disabled individual, a perfectly healthy individual who was a pilot, who was the co-pilot. And he hadn't really driven this plane through the area that they were in, through these mountains, and during the 70s, this this plane was commissioned through the, the military to ride these like rugby players and their families all over to go play a match. And when they did that, the co-pilot was maintaining the aircraft and was lost just by 40 miles. And 40 miles seems like a really long distance. But when you're going 300, 400 miles per hour, it's not. And so... You could do that in 25 minutes, 20 minutes of just going the wrong direction. You're 40 miles off off path. And so when what happened was this guy lowered his altitude and did so so much that he hit the tail end of the plane on the back of a cliff, broke the plane in half, it ripped the wings off of the plane and stranded these 27 people in this horrific mountainous frigid freezing area. And those people were there for 80, I believe it's 81 days. They survived in the climate where the temperatures would drop 80 degrees in one hour. Now it It's a little graphic movie, so I'll give you that. That parental discretion. Don't watch this with the kids, and don't watch it if you don't have a. If you're a little queasy when it comes to, I don't know, cannibalism, because it's kind of a theme throughout it all. But this is a real story that happened, and the only reason that these guys survived, a certain amount of them survived, was because of their both their heroic acts, and the fact that they ended up cannibalizing each other. And the story is truly amazing in, in and in a testament to humanity and how certain individuals in that situation can step up into leadership roles and help to uh, you know, work alongside other people to delegate tasks and, and all these amazing things that they did together. It's actually a really interesting case study on like almost a, uh, the, the antithesis of Lord of the Flies. And I think that's partially because a small portion of these individuals actually happened to be teammates prior to this. So they were already on their own side. They were all wearing a jersey together. They had some camaraderie. And so I think that's a, that's a big piece of it. But I also think that when, when you're in that situation, there's always going to be several leaders who step up and decide that they're going to speak for the group and that they're the ones that are most capable to lead them out of a terrible situation. And you really find the character out of an individual when they're in a a situation like that and whether they step up or they look around the room to meet the eyes of somebody who's going to. And there's different people for different roles in life. And that's not to say that any one person is less than the other. But I do think that there is a certain gene within a a man or a woman that makes them more capable leaders than others. And when you're in a situation that is literally life and death, you want to make sure that you have a capable leader. In this specific instance, they actually had the captain of their team that helped uh, take on that initial leadership role that they all kind of looked to throughout this film. Now it's truly an incredible film, and I know I'm getting off on a tangent here, but you should go watch it. Don't blame me because I already warned you about the cannibalism stuff. All right, guys, <laughs> like, don't don't be messaging me, getting all mad at me for. But it, it's it's a great movie, and and it's definitely worth the watch, and it'll make you queasy for you know a few scenes, but it's worth it. It's interesting. <laughs> And so when you have somebody who's a co-pilot and for 10 minutes looked the wrong direction and, and wasn't following the right you know, path, hun- like I don't know how many people were on the original plane, but it was probably at least 70 people died as a result of this tiny little mistake. This isn't a cab driver. And even then, you, you probably shouldn't be a cab driver if you have severe intellectual disabilities. So when it comes to the FAA, the standards are high for a reason, high for a reason, and it's for your safety. So when you have Boeing with their 757s that came out flaunting in a video where all of their engineers are now women walking through a trade show in slow motion thinking they're all cool. Meanwhile, (laughs) they should have been in the back of a, a hangar with a screwdriver screwing on the the windows or the, the door that fell off of the, the airplane. Like every single piece of aviation has to be handled with extreme care from the mechanics that are working on a plane, obviously, to the FAA air traffic controllers that are maintaining air traffic and giving, telling people where to go and how to get there and how to get there safely to the pilots that are actually sitting in that cockpit, making sure that you and your family land without dying. That's a pretty important role, don't you think? And I don't think that that's somebody that I want to have severe intellectual and psychiatric disabilities. And when we go back to my time in the Air Force, when I was an air traffic controller, you wouldn't, if you were feeling any sort of anxiety or depression or any, any lingering mental health issue at all, you would never, never go speak with a therapist. It was a death sentence for your career an absolute death sentence for your career. If you went to speak to a therapist, a psychiatrist, a psychologist, you would not be able, they would immediately strip you of, of your, your duties. You wouldn't be allowed to go do your job because now you're, you're at a risk and they can't risk having somebody with a medical history of any mental health issues or physical disabilities or intellectual disabilities because you can kill people. Not even just like one or two. You kill lots of people in air traffic or as a pilot. And all of those decisions that you have to make are split-second decisions. So this is absolutely crazy to me. But let's, let's go ahead and watch this here. Or I'll read it for you. Which says, the Federal Aviation Administration places a priority on hiring people with severe intellectual disabilities as a part of the Diversity and Inclusion Initiative. According to its website, the FAA claims individuals with targeted or severe disabilities are the most underrepresented segment of the federal workforce. Under its People with Disabilities program, the agency says it actively recruits, hires, promotes, retains, and develops and advances people with disabilities. The FAA targets the following disabilities as a matter of policy, hearing, vision. Missing extremities, oh God, partial paralysis, complete paralysis, epilepsy, severe intellectual disabilities, psychiatric disabilities, and dwarfism. Could you imagine if you go to get into your plane and as you're boarding Delta Flight, you see a blind, deaf dwarf with one arm sitting there ready to fly your plane? That doesn't sound like a good idea at all. I am immediately grabbing my luggage and turning right around and exiting the plane because that's I'm not trying to be able list or whatever the fuck you want to call it. But there are certain qualities that that make you capable of flying a plane and being deaf, blind, missing extremities or being Paralyzed seem to fall under the category of the things that you wouldn't want from your pilot. I would say. Now, the FAA told Fox News that it seeks qualified candidates from as many sources as possible, all of whom must meet rigorous qualifications that, of course, will vary by position. Its website reveals that those with disabilities or those who have veteran status can be hired via non-competitive or on-the-spot process as long as a manager files the proper paperwork, thus giving them preferential treatment in the hiring process. The aviation industry has received further scrutiny from the public in the wake of Alaska Airlines' door plug being blown off the sides of its two-month-old Boeing 737-9 MAX aircraft, causing it to make an emergency landing. In a post on X, tech mogul Elon Musk asked, Do you want to fly in an airplane where they prioritize DEI hiring over your safety? He added, That is actually happening. People will die due to DEI. And I wholeheartedly believe we should just switch those as D-I-E, guys. When it comes to the FAA, at least, it's D-I-E. It's no longer D-E-I. So he posted that on X and then uh, goes on to talk about how Boeing had that situation that occurred as well. Now, they go into a whole history of Boeing's D-E-I program, uh, which is just as concerning as we see it all actually playing out now with the 737's door falling off mid-flight. Could you imagine? And the people that were supposed to be sitting in the, the aircraft next to that door that fell off, I'm pretty sure, like, missed the flight or something like that. Um, now, it says the Alaska Airlines situation came on the heels of a shocking report in December, which showed that there was 19 instances where planes nearly crashed into each other at the airports in the fir- in the first 10 months of 2023. Wow. This was the highest number since 2016. The report noted that the FAA had struggled to hire more air traffic controllers. And as the number of flights a day has gone up, the number of fully certified air traffic controllers is down 1,000 people from 10 years ago. And that's when I was an air traffic controller. was literally 2013, 2014. Yeah. So interesting. Wow. Didn't know that they were in that much dire difficulty that they'd hire somebody who's completely paralyzed <laughs> to be an air traffic controller. The bar is... Sticky tape on the ground. All right, and that leads us to our next conversation here, which comes out of. And I guess let's do this two ways. We could do one of two ways. We can start with the caucus, or we can start with the World Economic Forum. You choose. I'll wait. Oh, you said you wanted to start with the World Economic Forum. Perfect. Let's do that. So it says from the post millennial, the potential twenty twenty four Trump win of great concern to to Davos elites at annual World Economic Forum meeting. So. Every year, if you didn't know, a bunch of multi-billionaires of all these corporations across the world that all come together to conspire on how to control you, on how to eliminate your freedoms, on how to put you into a tinier and tinier box every year and strip you of the ability to transport yourself from point A to point B and figure out a way to continue to siphon money off of you so they can pay it to themselves. Oh, and also, you know, take every single power uh, advantage that they can over the general public they meet in the i think it's like the swiss alps <laughs> in switzerland and at davos and all these people get together and they conspire together and they have these fancy looking meetings and then you know claus schwab walks up there in his star wars attire and talks about how you're going to eat the bugs and you're going to uh say, oh nothing's i'm be happy with it like all of that stuff, right? That's the World Economic Forum, if you didn't know. Sure you did, because you're listening to me. But if you didn't know, there you go. Now, the World Economic Forum leaders, specifically from BlackRock, said that Trump becoming president is of great concern for them when it comes to their annual World Economic Forum meeting. And this again comes from the Post Millennial, which says in 2024, GOP frontrunners Donald Trump's potential return to the White House was of great concern to one elite and stoked fears and others at the, earlier we- at the yearly World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, Switzerland. Going to the, into the Iowa caucuses, Trump is far ahead of primary competition in recent polls. The potential for him to become president of the United States again spurred nervous discussions thousands of miles away from the elite meeting. You know, we've been there before and we survived it, so we'll see what it means, BlackRock Vice Chairman Philip Hildebrand said, according to Bloomberg. Certainly for a Euro- from a European perspective, from a kind of globalist, Atlanticist perspective, it's of course a great concern. You hear that, that word, globalist, right? European Central Bank President Christine Lagarde thought that Trump going back to his office, it was obviously a threat in an interview this week before the elite meeting that she attends regularly. The video's in uh, French, so I won't play it for you unless you speak French, in which case go find it and listen to it yourself and then you can tell all of us what it says. (laughs) The former Swiss National Bank president also shared Lagarde's fears of Trump regarding to returning to office. Former Vice President Al Gore did not think it was a foregone conclusion that Trump would get elected. I don't think it's a foregone conclusion, he said. Yeah, well, thank you. I've been through the process. I've run four national campaigns over the years and seen it from that perspective. I've seen a lot of surprises over the years. The yearly elite meetup started this week and goes until January 19th. And as always, I do cover that in length as well every year. So I'm sure we will be doing that also this week. All right. Now, just because they just said that, I would love to share with you that the Iowa caucus has been called. And Donald Trump took just 34 minutes to win the election or the caucus, whatever. Um, So let's go ahead and read a little bit about that here. And that is... Interesting to me because it was such a landslide that Donald Trump won in Iowa. He won by 75% of votes within the first 30 minutes. Now, this is supposed to get dragged out a little bit, but basically everybody's already calling it because they're saying that there were so many people, and I'm sure we have even more of a definitive statistic now, but there were so many people that voted for Trump out of the generalized first election counting that was happening within the first 35 minutes that they just went, eh guess it's Trump, which is scaring the shit out of a lot of people, especially if you're in Switzerland right now. Uh, So that's cool. What I found to be interesting was that following Donald Trump, at least at the time that I'm reading this, was Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley surprised me by being in that position. And I guess she's kind of like the GOP, you know, if you want to use the word neocons or the, you know, the establishment conservatives. She's literally the face of it. She used to run, she used to work at like the NATO's or UN side of things. And, you know, all of that deeply entrenched in the swamp. And it surprises me that she's in second place at all, because everything that's come out of her mouth is just warmongering bullshit. Next up after her right now is Ron DeSantis. Now, what's even more interesting than that to me is the fact that Vivek Ramaswamy is in fourth place behind DeSantis and Nikki Haley. For how convincing his speech is, it doesn't seem to be helping him much in the polls. There was a big spat this week and last between Donald Trump and Vivek. And I guess I said Vivek, but I'm pretty sure it's Vivek after I called him out a few times, but it's Vivek. And in that spat, uh, Donald Trump basically said that Vivek is trying to go out and say that, oh, he's, you know, there was a picture that came out of Vivek next to four individuals Uh, younger looking guys who were saying that, you know, save Trump, choose Vivek, which is basically the idea behind that is the fact that Trump's not going to be able to get near the White House and they would never let that. So you should choose me because I'm the next best option. Now, I don't disagree with the sentiment of some of that, but that pissed off a lot of Trump voters and it also pissed off Trump, which made Trump respond to him. And basically just obliterate Vivek fairly quickly. I would be really interested to see them on a debate stage together. I don't know if we will, which is super sad to me, uh, because it would be, I don't know, that's what democracy is, is hearing two people stand up there and have an argument about their belief systems, so that we can decide who's full of shit and who seems to be telling the truth. No, the real answer is they're all full of shit. None of them are telling the truth, but at least we get to feel like we partake in the process. At least we get to feel like we heard them speak from their own mouth and have some sort of verbal combat with the other individual that we're deciding between. And I think that's important. But it's telling as we go into all of these debates that there has been no Democratic debates at all. There has been no debates with Donald Trump in them. There has been no Joe Biden speaking out about what's going to happen. Now, that's a super interesting one because we still have no idea who's even going to be the front runner. I I believe there's more and more whispers now that it could be Michelle Obama, however, which would make for a very, very interesting election. I think that might be one of the only ways that you would see Trump have a difficult time winning and specifically and only because of perception. It's like Oprah, (laughs) Michelle Obama, I don't know who else, The Rock, (laughs) Mark Cuban. Like those would be like the four people that I could see even giving Trump a hard time potentially if they actually showed up and, and debated him. Now, there you have it. There's your update on both Trump and the caucus. And I think that we will be seeing these landslides pretty consistently as the time goes on in the conservative party, because Trump just trounced, absolutely destroyed Vivek. And that to me is the only possible individual that could have gone toe to toe with him in any way, shape or form. So now it's like almost a race for second, which is what everybody's saying about this is like, yeah, we're... Watching this only specifically because we want to see who comes in second place, and and hopefully, I you know honestly, I would rather have Vivek than Desantis or Nikki Haley, and and I'm I'm not against Desantis. His presence throughout this election cycle has just been absolutely atrocious. It was sitting on the debate stage, getting just pummeled, pummeled by Gavin Newsom in their debate. Uh, I, just watching that was so difficult. I I just prayed that Vivek gets the same opportunity. And again, I'm not a Vivek supporter in in that way. I I have a lot of questions about Vivek and his sincerity. And uh, there was actually even more news about Vivek that came out this week and his snaky little ways, which is the fact that one of the companies that he owned, the one that made him much of his money was a pharmaceutical company, right? We know that. But also, what ended up happening was he basically bought the rights to a dead pharmaceutical drug that lost all of its clinical trials, never went into the third phase of trials. And then, basically, this was for dementia, purchased the drug, and I think this was under Roy Vint, and purchased the drug and then put it back through trials. Only this time, there was one difference in the way that he put it through trials. He put his mother... On the team that was conducting the trials. Lo and behold, after a few rounds of running these scientific trials, suddenly there's this amazing breakthrough in the dementia world, and this medication could have gone and been an amazing thing. The stock jumps up to almost $200 per share from almost nothing. Then, as it goes through the third round of trials, the stock plummets because it doesn't pass the third rounds of clinical trials. What we call that is a pump and dump. The there was their entire idea was to purchase this pharmaceutical drug, make it appear through scientific swindling, which is basically all scientists today, anyways, especially when it comes to pharmaceuticals, over literally anything, and then pump up the stock by putting out some some PR information, sending your son on a PR uh, trip to go speak on all of the best talk shows, and you know he, his silvery slick little tongue. And then, as soon as, right before you're supposed to go through that third round of clinical trials, you drop all your shares. And that leaves all of the money, all of the money that's lost to the individuals that don't drop it in time. And that's exactly what they did. So he's just a pump and dump little schemer. So, thought that was interesting. Something I learned this week as well. All right. So... Those are your main topics today, but there was one last thing that I think will segue us into the Martin Luther King conversation, and this actually is interesting because it comes from Robert Kennedy Jr. at a speech at Hillsdale College in which he calls out another situation where the powers that be attempted to assassinate individuals who didn't fall in line, which perfectly segues us into our conversation about Martin Luther King. So here's the video. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. speaking at Hillsdale College. And this is actually interesting because JFK is, you know, um, is actually the one who allowed uh, the FBI to conduct its wiretapping on Martin Luther King. Now, there's a reason behind that, that he was trying to basically allegedly expose the fact that Martin Luther King wasn't a communist and all these claims and that, 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 but we'll get to that in a minute. But it is just funny that, that we're speaking to his nephew or watching his nephew speak about the topic that he was the one who, you know, allowed the wiretapping. Anyways, here we go. Watch here as Robert F. Kennedy Jr. Drops a absolute bombshell about the federal government. And well, just watch because it's pretty wild.
2: Then in 2001 in June the CIA sponsors the first of its pandemic simulations it simulates a biological attack on Washington DC by Saddam Hussein this is in June 2001 that simulation got got international press and a lot of the CIA people like Judith Miller from the New York Times was promoting it, going around doing all the talk shows. It, uh, it triggered two Senate hearings, one by Joe Biden's committee. And that hearing was in September 2001. What happened in September 2001? The 9-11. So that hearing was going on during 9-11. As soon as 9-11 happened, the neocons, which were working on all this stuff with the CIA, pulled out the Patriot Act, a 350-page statue from a shelf where it had been waiting for a while, and in one week said, we want to pass this in a week. There's only one member of Congress who read it, which was Dennis Kucinich, and he went crazy and said, you have no idea this is the end of American democracy if you do this. It allows the CIA to spy on Americans. One of the things the Patriot Act did is it did not get rid of the Geneva Convention or the Bioweapons Treaty, but it said no federal official can be prosecuted for violating those two statutes. So it reopened the Bioweapons Arms Race globally. And when the, a week after, when the Patriot Act was being debated, and it was being held up by two senators there was an anthrax attack on the u.s Capitol. it was blamed on saddam hussein and they, the although neocons all said see we were right in the pandemic simulation saddam hussein attacked us and we used that as a justification to go to war against saddam hussein and within two days we passed the patriot act who got the anthrax two senate offices Tom Daschle and Patrick Lee, I, the two senators who were blocking the Patriot Act. The FBI Damn. did a one-year investigation. They said this uh, anthrax was unique. It was Ames anthrax, and there's only one place in the world it could have come from, Fort Detrick, the CIA lab.
1: Damn. Bomb shell dropped by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. there. That is absolutely insane. Now, if you grew up in the area, the era that I did, or even after, you remember being terrified of anthrax. You remember hearing about how, oh, somebody could just send you a letter and all of a sudden you're dead, on the ground, dead. But now come to find out that that entire scare, the entire anthrax scare that we recall that's sifted and that's seared into our memory was because two senators held out on the Patriot Act because they said it would end democracy. And as a result of saying those things and deciding not to approve it, they had, of all of the senators that were there, those are the only two individuals who received the letters with the anthrax in it as a threat saying, pass this or else. And as he just said in the very end there, the fact that not only were they targeted, that was obviously blatantly clear why they were doing it, but also the only way, the only way that that could have, or the only place that that specific type of anthrax could have come from was Fort Detrick with this CIA. This is what you have to realize is when you're dealing with these organizations, especially, you know, and I say especially back then, and that, that could still be perfectly well the case that nothing has changed. And they're still absolutely conducting this type of thing. They're probably just a little smarter about it. And the documents are classified for another 30 years, right? Because every 30 years, you're going to go, oh, that was in the 1990s. That was in the early 2000s. They wouldn't do that to us now. Guys. Right. They, they wouldn't do that to us now as all the senators are in a room looking at each other. <laughs> Hire a specific uh, a specific <laughs> intern to open up all your mail. Right. Like it, it's so crazy to see that the lengths that they went to to go to combat anybody, anybody going against their wishes. And even that's interesting, what he said about the fact that they had a 350-page bill already written for exactly this type of situation, and then they utilized that emergency situation to pass whatever bills they wanted, and they could have put anything in there. And what he said is that there was only one person who read the damn thing. Because how do you, you get a week to, to sift through 350 legal pages, which is a nightmare, That's your job. How isn't it that everybody read through those? How isn't it that they didn't come with, if I'm in that position, I'm coming, I'm taking all of those documents, I'm going home, and I'm putting a flashlight down on it with a highlighter, and then I'm I'm taking those and writing notes into a journal and making, writing down my thoughts, and then coming back to the table and going, here's what's wrong with this, here's why you shouldn't pass this, and make an actual argument. But that's not what these senators do. They... Are told here's the package. You pass it. Now, when anybody has a brain in these positions, you know, we talked about Madison Cawthorn a couple days ago or a couple of episodes ago, where he spoke out against some things that were happening. And guess what? With a 95 percent uh, general reelection cycle for a senator, he didn't. He was one of the five percent, and he was super popular among the the, the people. Um, so, if you don't do what they say. They're going to make you do what they say, whether it's through blackmail, like we talked about yesterday with, or yesterday, we talked about it last episode, though it seems like yesterday on Friday, Um, we talked about Epstein, blackmail, right? We talked about now even physical threats like anthrax, or even what we'll see from here, from Truman's uh, FBI here is the fact that they sent Martin Luther King a letter, and they sent Martin Luther King a letter basically saying, kill yourself, and if you don't, somebody else will do it for you within 34 days, and it won't be as pleasant. That's an actual letter, and actually, I'm sorry, that was Hoover um, that, sent, that sent that letter, uh, but terrifying what these organizations are, are willing to do to hold their power and to make their decisions be unquestionable, right? You can't, you can't say anything back against these organizations or else, well, or else what? Well, or else we'll kill you with anthrax. Don't even read it. Cause if you do, your moral compass will get in the way. Just pass it. That's all we need you to do. That's why you're in your position is because we paid for you to be here. Now pass the bill. Right? That's all they want you to do. They don't want you to think. You're not there to represent the American people. You're there to represent the globalists, like we talked about with the World Economic Forum. You're there to represent the lobbyists. And you're there to represent the people that gave you your money to get there. Not the people who voted for you, quote unquote, to be in your position. No. Because that's not how you really got there. You got there because you had a $25 million donation from BlackRock. And I found this to be interesting too, and this is a side note while I'm waiting for some other things to pull up here, which is the fact that uh, George Soros has traditionally gone after local level officials because the cost to lobby people into positions of power in Washington is so much more than it is to do it locally. If he wants a DA and in, I don't know, Chicago, he can get one there. If he wants a judge in Des Moines, Iowa, he can get one there at a much lower cost than actually trying to get somebody into a presidential position and get somebody somebody into a Senate position. It's much easier for you to get somebody into a local run than you are into a national one. So this leads me to where this all started, which is the fact that on Martin Luther King Day, the FBI posted on their Twitter account, which is quite ironic, first of all, but let's go ahead and read what they had to say. The FBI posted, On January 15th of 2024, this MLK Day, the FBI honors one of the most prominent leaders of the civil rights movement and reaffirms its commitment to Dr. King's legacy of fairness and equal justice for all. Well, guess what? That got hit with a community note, and I will share it with you because it's absolutely hilarious, and I'm so glad that this exists. Here it is. Let me go ahead and share it on the screen for you here. So here's the tweet from the FBI. And here is the community note, which says, The FBI engaged in surveillance of King, attempted to discredit him, and used manipulation tactics to influence him to stop organizing. King's family believed the FBI was responsible for his death. Praise the community, notes, gods that this got posted because in one community note on X, they absolutely obliterated the FBI, absolutely obliterated them. <laughs> this, this has to go down as the single greatest community note in Twitter X history is the fact that the FBI got community noted as being the potential perpetrator of Martin Luther King's death directly under their tweet. Now, I would love to go look at the comments of that because that has 3.7 million views. But this leads us into our next conversation. Did the FBI assassinate Martin Luther King? Well, by the end of this, hopefully you have your answer because I know mine. So let's begin this At the very beginning of the situation. I'll give you a brief breakdown, and then we'll walk through some of the pieces that we pick up along the way. All right, so I have some of this written down, so bear with me, but I wanted to organize this in a way that was easy to understand the totality of this situation, because once you get into the details, whether it's JFK's assassination, whether it's Martin Luther King's assassination, whether it's Bobby Kennedy's assassination, whether it's John Lennon, all of these become so complex and confiscated, because that's the goal. All they need to do is create enough enough doubt around the situation that they can just continue doing their job. So, here we go. Tonight, we're peeling back the layers of a story that, quite frankly, the mainstream media is too timid to touch. The assassination of Martin Luther King Jr., now... You all know the official story, the one that's been neatly packaged and sold to us by the FBI for years. But what if I told you there's another side to that story, one that's been shrouded in government secrets and mystery? First, let's set the scene. Martin Luther King, the face of the civil rights movement, a man who was no stranger to the specter of death. In 1958, he survived a near, a near-fatal stabbing In 1963, post JFK's assassination, he eerily predicts a similar fate for himself. This isn't just a footnote in history. It's a chilling prelude to what's to come. Now, fast forward to 1968, King and his Southern Christian Leadership Conference comrades are in Memphis, Tennessee, advocating for the rights of sanitation workers. It's a noble cause, but it turns out to be King's last on April 4th, at the Lorraine Motel Room, room 306, a room that practically had King's name on it. His life is tragically cut short by a sniper's bullet. The FBI story: James Earl Ray, a convicted criminal, acted alone. Sound familiar. But let's not be so quick to swallow the narrative. Ray is captured, and the stories we're fed is that he's alone racist gunman. But hold on. Ray soon recants his con- confession, reclaiming that he was just a pawn in a larger game orchestrated by a shadowy figure named Raoul. This is where the plot thickens. Consider this. The King family, not satisfied with the official account, starts digging deeper. They uncover enough anomalies and inconsistencies to file a lawsuit against Lloyd Jowers and various government entities, alleging a sprawling conspiracy behind King's assassination. And in a stunning turn of events, they win the case. Testimonies during the trial implicate not just Jowers, but also the FBI, the CIA, the U.S. Army, and even elements of the mafia. Now let's talk about the evidence. The rifle that was supposedly linked to Ray the linked ray to the crime scene was never conclusively matched to the bullet that killed King. So, the bullet that was lodged in King's head when he died was not a match to the specific rifle that James O'Reilly allegedly used. Now, then there's the mystery pattern of deaths and intimidations, witnesses, key figures, anyone who dared to challenge the official narrative met with untimely and suspicious ends. Hmm. Also sounds familiar to JFK's Now Doesn't It. Is this just a series of coincidences, or does it point to a desperate attempt to silence the truth? Ray's own story, frankly, is riddled with holes. Here's a man with a limited understanding of firearms, a low military marksmanship score, suddenly pegged as a mastermind, capable of executing one of the most significant assassinations in American history. Hmm. We start to ask some more questions. Then there's the hasty manner in which Ray was pinned as the lone assassin almost immediately. Authorities find him and case closed. But the discrepancies are glaring. Questions about the ballistic evidence, the rush to judgment, the odd sequence of events post-assassination is a jigsaw puzzle with far too many missing pieces. Now consider the broader context. This is the 1960s, a time of turmoil, of government distrust, of agencies known for covert operations and dirty tricks. The King's family lawsuit and the subsequent verdict didn't just raise eyebrows, they blew the lid off the official story, suggesting that Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination was not the act of a lone hate- driven gunmen, but the outcome of a deep-rooted, multi-layered government conspiracy. So let's dive deeper. Ray's narrative of being manipulated by Raul presents a picture of a man who is unknowingly set up to be the fall guy in an assassination that was part of a larger and darker agenda. This Raul character, who remains shrouded in mystery, is said to have directed Ray's actions, including the purchase of the alleged murder weapon. It begs the question, was Ray just a pawn in a much more complex game of high-stakes political chess. And let's not just gloss over the rapid response that was given in conclusion by authorities. Almost immediately after King's assassination, the focus narrows on Ray with little exploration into any alternative leads or motives. The evidence, such as the mismatched ballistics, Ray's lack of fingerprints in the alleged sniper's nest, and his dubious claim from escape from prison— paints a picture of convenient scapegoating rather than a thorough investigation. The mainstream media also ignores the broader climate of the time, a period rife with political assassinations, civil unrest, and a deep mistrust of government agencies. In this context, the idea of a government-linked conspiracy doesn't seem so far-fetched, does it? The King family... Meanwhile, steadfastly maintained that Ray was not the true assassin. They contended that his role was merely a diversion, a cover for a larger conspiracy involving government agencies and other powerful entities. Their victory in the civil trial against Lloyd Jowers and various government entities was just a win. wasn't just a win in court. It was a public declaration that the truth about King's assassination was far more complex than the world was led to believe. Now, let's talk about the aftermath. But Before we do that, I do want to discuss one thing. Who was this Jowers fellow? Lloyd Jowers was an individual who was connected with the mafia, who alleged during this court hearing that he was given a $100,000 to hire a hitman to kill Martin Luther King. He was told at the time that he was given that money that there would be no police presence around. They told him the exact place for him to be in. And when you look deeper and deeper into the situation with Martin Luther King, there's a ton of questions around this. First of all being, they moved Martin Luther King Jr. from his existing hotel room into another one, one with a balcony view. Interesting. Also, within this time, there was government assets on the ground in the area surrounding him not some security force just random government assets on the ground similar to what would we say oh, well, i don't know february 7th is that what they say or january 8th what's that date again hmm so there's more and more questions to be asked here right now and again the the the, the connection between the government the CIA, and the mafia is so bizarre during this time. You talk about all of the situation with Jack Ruby when it comes to JFK and the connection there. It just seems consistently a narrative that the CIA was working alongside the mafia to conduct these types of hits. So let's look at the aftermath of King's assassination and the series of mysterious deaths that followed. Key witness individuals with potentially damaging information suddenly and conveniently got out of the picture. It's a pattern that's too consistent to be mere coincidence. It's almost as if someone was tying up loose ends, ensuring the official narrative stayed unchallenged. Let's not forget the peculiar handling of the crime scene. The swift removal of potential evidence like the tree obstructing the alleged shooter's view and the immediate intense focus on Ray as the sole perpetrator. It's as if the authorities were more interested in closing the case than covering the full story. This is where the mainstream media often falls short. They don't dig deeper. They question the narrative handed to them. But that's not how we operate here. We look at the facts, the inconsistencies, and we ask the tough questions. So, let's look at some more of these details here. November, 1964.
0: After their earlier efforts to discredit Martin Luther King Jr. are unsuccessful, the FBI prepares to send Dr. King an anonymous package containing a document that will come to be known as the poison pen letter. F.B.I. Intelligence Chief Bill Sullivan, himself,
2: takes some plain, unmarked paper, and pretending to be an American Negro, types out
0: an anonymous, threatening letter, addressed simply King. The letter began by calling Dr. King a fraud and warned that the demise of his reputation among the public was fast approaching. The package also contained an audio tape, a compilation of FBI surveillance allegedly of King engaging in multiple extramarital affairs. The document's ominous closing, according to some scholars, suggested that Dr. King was given a deadline of 34 days to take his own life or suffer the humiliation of the tape's release
3: the interpretation of this by the people that investigated the FBI later, and by just about everybody who has gone through these records believes that they intended for him to commit suicide.
0: The FBI sent the package anonymously to Dr. King on November 21st, 1964, but it went unopened for over a month because King was in Oslo, Norway, accepting the Nobel Prize. The first person to eventually open Sullivan's
2: threatening package long after Christmas is Mrs. King. King and his associates, when they listen.
1: There you go. So the FBI went to blackmail, that is blackmail, blackmailed Martin Luther King Jr. to try to get him to commit suicide in order to escape the humiliation of his own infidelity. And we talked about honeypot schemes when it came to Jeffrey Epstein in our last episode, and it seems to be the case here. All they did was, you know, potentially had somebody go and show a lot of interest into him that was very attractive for lots of money, had them sleep with her, him sleep with her, and then recorded the transaction that was occurring. And now they have blackmail to get him to do whatever they want. Now, obviously, it's probably not a fair exchange to either die or suffer humiliation of being an adulterer, but they thought it was enough. And so, and they're still doing this today, right? We saw that with the anthrax, like they would even go further lengths than this to get their way. And their way has not changed, whether it was back then or today. They're still doing the same things, guaranteed. Maybe it's changed technologically in the fashions that they're doing it in, but it's the same old tactics, it's the same old company that has been doing this since their inception in 1947, And I think the FBI is obviously a different time than the CIA. So I'm thinking CIA there, but same difference, right? So that goes into the next conversation, which is surrounding who was James Earl Ray. And why do we think he's innocent? So let's bring up that and we'll discuss that video because here it is. This is actually from the trial, which occurred that we were discussing this entire time. And He, let's go ahead and here we go. Let's watch it.
4: Item of evidence to wit the rifle that allegedly a comparison was conducted of the bullet material removed from Dr. King with the 12 test bullets that could be adequately analyzed. This comparison revealed that the gross and unique characteristic signature left on the 12 test bullets by the James Earl Ray rifle was not present on the death bullet. There you have it. Uh, If you were to say, uh, Mr. Hathaway, what are your recommendations here today? I would say continue on, Try attempt the um, cleaning. It may or may not help. And secondly, I would attempt to get those FBI tests to see the earlier tests compared to the test of 30 years later.
1: This is them conducting the testing for the ballistics to match when they fire the rifle. which forensic science in the 90s and earlier was such horseshit and I'm speaking about things that sucked then and suck now I'm sure it's not I'm I'm sure it's much better now than it was but just seeing these guys sit in the lab and be like well there's no scratchies on here and so there's scratchies on that one he must have killed him
4: did you see them now and we're going to be stopping them at different points. Trying I'm to
0: pick up some in there. What I'm going to do is take it up to slightly higher.
4: And that's what we're going to be working with.
1: There you go. So that was the, just the forensic science surrounding it. Let's see if there's any oh, other conclusion. There you
4: go. Yeah. As you can see, we, we can get much better. But you have
3: to make a, uh, your own evaluation on that. Of course, I think there's other ways you might uh, come to the same conclusion in different different ways.
1: All right. So there you have it. There's the video of the uh, ballistics and forensic science surrounding the rifle not matching either. And then to top it all off, let's finish out with this video here from 1977. Listening to James Earl Ray himself.
4: So you heard uh, you heard the news on on the radio? Is yes. that the way you heard yeah. it? So you were driving. You left that that gas station at Second and Linden. What about six or?
3: I don't have any way of knowing. I think it's around that time, but mm-hmm. I don't even know if it's Linden. I know the approximate area it is, and mm-hmm. the, I've seen the map on the Enquirer. And, uh... mm-hmm. and you were going back to uh,
4: to pick up this man that you say is Raul. Is no, Lord. I just weighing the car back. So you heard all this confusion, had turned and flipped on the radio, they said Dr. King's been shot. Uh, at that, did you think you were set up at that point? Uh, no,
3: I was headed towards, toward New Orleans when I had the radio on. I used to keep the radio on. I think uh, I didn't, I have too strong feelings
4: about the, the shooting. Uh. <clears throat> when, when you met Raul, you, did you, you didn't know any other name for him? That's the name that he said was his and that that's all you ever knew. Yeah, I did, just knew. Mm-hmm. and you met him where Canada up in Canada yeah. and uh, And you just met in a saloon or?
3: It was a saloon in, in a waterfront area of uh, Montreal. Mm-hmm. You never became good friends then uh, No, I was not good friends. No. Mm-hmm. just business no.
4: mm-hmm.
3: These were all aliases uh, I assume uh,
4: and you don't think Raul was a real name at all
3: then? Uh? No, I've got some Freedom of Information papers in there saying there's Raul, San Diego or something, New Orleans is supposed to be a, him, but uh, I don't have the FBI. That's material from the FBI files, but I don't have no uh,
4: nothing to substantiate that. Do so you think their mind was made up when they got you?
3: Well, it had to be made up. Uh, I, they couldn't... Uh, uh, well, I don't know what, if there's any penalty for uh, extraditing someone fraudulently or not. But.
1: So there's his discussion around who the figure was that was Raul that helped to set him up. that gave him the money to purchase the hitman and basically set up the whole scheme for him that was the liaison between him and either the organized crime organizations and the FBI. So that's, that's the story in a nutshell. Right? There's lots of little minute details. There's documentaries that have been done on this that you can go check out yourself. But I wanted to give you that higher level. There was a lot of moving pieces, a lot of things that, that came up that changed, uh, that caused uh, Martin Luther King to find himself in that situation. In that time, that was the strings being pulled by these organizations. So I had a few of them written down from some of my research on this. And it starts like this. So the FBI wiretapped and spied on Martin Luther King. FBI director J. Edgar Hoover tried to blackmail Martin Luther King, and the FBI covered up his death and investigated themselves. In a 1999 civil trial, they determined the FBI was involved in his assassination. Sure, we talked about that. Then they created a federal holiday um, in his name. Right. Besides that, let's look at some of these here. The King family friend and attorney, William F. Pepper, won the civil trial, which found that the U.S. government agencies were guilty of being part of a conspiracy that resulted in the wrongful death and assassination of Dr. King. The damning positive evidence or body of evidence presented to the jury during this trial suggests that U.S. governmental complicity, which the jury obviously found extremely credible and included testimony about the following. The U.S. 111th Military Intelligence Group were at Dr. King's location, During the assassination, the 20th special forces group had eight, had an eight man sniper team at the assassination location that day. Usual Memphis police special bodyguards were advised that they weren't needed on the day of the assassination, regular and constant police protection for Dr. King was removed from protecting Dr. King just an hour before the assassination. Military intelligence set up photographers on the roof of a fire station with clear view of Dr King's balcony. Dr King's room was changed from a secure first floor room to an exposed balcony room. Memphis police ordered ordered the scene where multiple witnesses reported as the source of shooting cut down on their bush or cut down on their bushes that would have hit a sniper. So Memphis police ordered the scene where multiple witnesses reported as the source of shooting to cut down the bushes that would have hid a sniper. Along with sanitizing a crime scene, police abandoned investigative procedure to interview a witness who lived by the scene of the shooting. The rifle Mr. Ray delivered was not a match to the bullet that killed Dr. King and was not cited to accurately shoot. So there's, some additional evidence from this trial that came out and obviously that's pretty damning and it it goes right alongside the situation you know you talk about john lennon being assassinated this way for speaking out against the the war machine you talk about jfk you talk about all of these people that were speaking out to power finding themselves in the same situation Now, here's an interesting thread, and this will be fairly quick, Um, and it comes from somebody on X, so again, take it with a grain of salt, but it says that born in 1929, Michael King was the son of a black preacher known as Daddy King. In 1935, Daddy King renamed himself after Protestant reformer Martin Luther, subsequently changing Michael's name to Martin Luther King Jr., none of which was legalized in court. Hmm. So his real name was not Michael, it was Martin Luther King Jr., Uh, interesting. Um, there's a, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was a notorious plagiarizer. So that I've typed up a few examples below. However, there are many such cases. Uh, the first public sermon that King gave in 1947 at the Ebenezer Baptist church was plagiarized from a homely by Protestant clergyman, Harry Emerson Fostick entitled life is what you make it. Hmm. Uh, the first book that King wrote, Stride Toward Freedom, was plagiarized from numerous sources, all unattributed according to the documentation released and assembled by sympathetic King scholars. Four senior editors to the papers to Martin Luther King Jr. stated that Martin's writings were at, at both Boston University and Crozer Theological Seminary, judged retro- retroactively by standards of academic scholarship, are tragically flawed by numerous instances of plagiarism. Okay, we get the point. Uh, as long as it's not the I have a dream speech, right? <laughs> Uh, King's PhD dissertation, a comparison of the concept, the conceptions of God in the thinking of Paul Tillich and Harry Nelson Wyman contains more than 50 complete sentences plagiarized from the PhD dissertation by Dr. Jack Boozer. According to the Martin Luther King Papers, an official publication of the Martin Luther King Center of Nonviolent Social Change, whose staff includes widow Coretta, in King's dissertation, only 49% of se- uh, sentences in the section on Tilwich contained five or more words that were King's own. Okay, so plagiarizer, right? Probably many people back then when they're going through school. Probably many people today using ChatGPT. Um, this says that there's a article that says trained, handled, and surrounded by Jewish Bolsheviks. And it points to a old newspaper article. I uh, can't exactly make out the, the. let's see if I can get in here. The Augustus Courier, the Augusta Courier um, from August uh, and from Augusta, Georgia. Um, it says Martin Luther King at communist training school. Uh, the article says, let's see. Yeah, we'll move on from that, but interesting. I've talked about a few examples of the communist infiltration of King's movement below. Most notable is the fact that every move MLK made was dictated and approved by the Jewish handler Stanley Levinson, who referred to King as a slow thinker and refused to let him act alone. Interesting. In fact, the entirety of the civil rights movement was largely orchestrated and funded by Jews. What? Many examples of this can be found in Benjamin Ginsburg, The Fatal Embrace. I will list a few below. Hmm. I mean, I'll take it at face value, I guess. But I, I just, I'd just i have to do more research to substantiate that. Um, examples of the Jewishness of the civil rights movement found in Benjamin Ginsburg, The Fatal Embrace. Jewish organizations were closely with civil rights groups during the 1960s in their struggles at, on behalf of voting rights and for the desegregation of public facilities and accommodations. Jewish contributors provided a substantial share of the funding for such civil rights groups as such as the NAACP and core Jewish attorneys were at the forefront of the legal offensive against the American apartheid system and Stanley Levinson, a longtime official and fundraiser of the American Jewish Congress became Martin Luther King's chief aide and advisor having previously served as a major fundraiser for Bayard Rustin. Interesting. Jack Greenberg, head of the NAACP legal defense was the most important civil rights attorney in the United States, and let's see, Uh, Jewish individuals were, I mean, okay, I don't don't see, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Um, Because remember, diversity is such a blessing to America, it had to be enforced at gunpoint by the 101st Airpoint Division in Little Rock, Arkansas, during the forced racial integration of high schools in 1957. Uh, I mean, Yeah, but it still should be done, right? Like what? Um, Martin Luther King Jr. was also a well-known sexual degenerate. Evidence was made available to the public when Trump instructed the National Archives to release documents pertaining to JFK's assassination. And again, not wholeheartedly buying much of this, but although this is obviously true, the FBI documents that were unsealed, um, but I'm not sure if it goes into detail on the sexual deviancy of him. Uh, It says he typed up some of the... Information regarding King's degeneracy below. Evidence was also provided that King frequently used grant money to pay for alcohol, drugs, and prostitutes. Uh, Worth noting that the man most responsible for the FBI probe in the M.O.K. was an assistant director, William C. Sullivan. Sullivan describes himself as a liberal and says that initially I was 100% for King because I saw him as an effective and badly needed leader. Um, Okay, not seeing the sexual deviancy. Uh, In February 1968, while running a workshop on urban leadership in Miami, King hired prostitutes with funds from the Ford Foundation. He then engaged in binge drinking and group sex acts, which the FBI describes as deviating from the normal. Okay. The FBI relates how King participated in another drunken sex orgy in Washington, D.C. back in 1964. The sex acts were both natural and unnatural. Not sure what that means. According to the FBI, were performed for the Entertainment of onlookers. In 1960, this was a pattern for King, who, according to the FBI, has continued to carry on such sexual aberrations secretly while holding himself out to the public view as a moral leader and religious conviction. I mean, that's fair. Uh, the FBI documents reveal that King had a, sired a baby girl out of wedlock with a wife of a prominent dentist in Los Angeles. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, King was known to participate in orgies, especially those involving prostitutes, usually paid for by grant money, the National Civil Rights Museum, which is putting on display in two bedrooms of Lorraine Motel, where King stayed that night before he was shot, has declined to depict in any way the occupants of those rooms. Doing so, according to exhibit designer Gerald Esterhold, would be close to blasphemy. The reason? Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. spent his last day on earth having sexual intercourse with two women at a motel and physically beating and abusing a third. Eh, let's see the substantiation on that. Um, J. Edgar Hoover personally saw it to it that documented information on King's degeneracy and the communist connections was provided to the president and to Congress. Conclusively, conclusive information from the FBI files was also provided to major newspapers and news wire services. Were the American people informed of King's real nature? Hmm. All right. Uh, not sure. I buy some of that, although the documents that were released from the JFK stuff seems to be pretty well substantiated. Um, very interesting. So, on that note, I still believe that he did a fair amount of good stuff, regardless of the articles he copy and pasted for his PhD dissertation, which I don't blame you for. And if you're getting into sexual orgies, who cares? Although the fact that you're married with children probably isn't a good look and you shouldn't do that. And yeah, being a prominent leader of a, you know, religious situation while doing those things, probably not a good look either. Um, but that, I don't think that takes away from, you know, the substantial uh, impact that he gave during the times of segregation. Right, there's a reason. Now I don't I obviously the, the reason they gave him a, a federal holiday is because of the ideologies and the impact that he had, but also was a little bit due to the fact that maybe they murdered him. That could have been it too. <laughs> So that is what I have for you guys today. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it from the bottom of my heart. Head over to the Substack, .substack austinadams.substack.com. Get signed up there. Uh, Find me on Instagram, YouTube, Rumble, Twitter, X, all the places. Um, And I'll see you there. All right. Thank you guys so much. I appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. I love you. Have a great day.
4: The Adams Archive.